Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Thank you, Jade. So for the last 24 Sundays, we've been going through 1 Corinthians together, verse by verse, uh, mostly. And over the last five Sundays, we've been looking at spiritual gifts as we've got into chapters 12, 13, and chapter 14. And this will be the second sermon in chapter 14. Last week, we looked a little closely at a gift that's mentioned in chapter 14 called the gift of prophecy. And we spoke a little bit about it. What is it? How, how does it work? How does it function? And, uh, and do we see it in the church today? And I think we landed on some really helpful applications at the end. Today, we're going to be looking at the gift of tongues. And so I want to begin by just reading uh, three verses, and then we're going to just talk a little bit about this idea. Now, if you've been in the church for some time, uh, depending on your background, if you've been in a charismatic church setting before, you would have some kind of experience, whether positive or negative, I'm not sure, and I've heard some, um, some wonderful stories, and I've heard some very sad stories of, of people's different experiences in relation to uh, this charismatic phenomena called the gift of tongues. And so let's allow the scriptures to speak a little bit to us, and then we're going to carry on. From verse 1, here we go. Pursue love, Paul says. Having just come from chapter 13, this is the big idea. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. The gifts are subordinate to love. Love endures forever. Remember, love is preeminent. Love is permanent. The gifts are temporary, but we can desire them, especially, he says, that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Down to verse 5. Paul then says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. What is speaking in tongues? And I hope by the end of tonight, I would have shed some light and not just heat on uh, this particular subject. But the challenge is that there are only two significant places in the Bible that speak to us regarding specifics in terms of speaking in tongues. We have this chapter, chapter 14. We have hints of it in chapter 12 and chapter 13. But chapter 14 is the most explicit. Chapter 14 deals with some details, what it is, what it isn't, how it should be handled. Then outside of 1 Corinthians, all we have is Acts, the book of Acts, where we see the same gift operating on three, possibly four occasions. We will consider these verses, but in order to do justice to this topic, in order to be faithful, what we usually do when it comes to something controversial is we apply a good and faithful biblical principle, and that is we need to compare Scripture with Scripture. And so if you ever come across something obscure in the Bible or something that's not very clear, what you do is you find another Scripture that speaks on the same idea and that helps clarify the obscure. So you go to the clear, and that helps clarify the obscure. Now, it's difficult to do that, right? Because we've only got two places, 1 Corinthians 14 and Acts chapter 2. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go a little higher. 
We're going to go a little wider. We're going to consider as a whole, what does the Bible say about this idea of the tongue? Because that's the word we're dealing with here. What does it say about the tongue? And then we're going to come in and land a little more closely at chapter 14. So, broadly speaking, the Bible uses this word tongue, firstly and largely in regards to our praise and our worship. And there are many examples. I just picked one, Psalm 35, verse 28. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and your praise all the day long. So the interpreters and, and, and the psalmist and, and the translators have no problem saying that this, this member of your body, this thing in your mouth called the tongue, it's used for the glory of God. It's used to praise God, to tell of His wonders. But also the Bible warns that the tongue can be an unruly member. And the Bible speaks about it being a wicked or forked tongue. And so we see examples in Psalm 109 verse 2. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. And we know the famous passage in James verse 3 verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Wow, we've got these vastly contrasting uses of the tongue, But also, when we go broad like this, we find that the Bible speaks about the tongue in terms of nations or languages. And so we find in Philippians 2, verse 10, it says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, in other words, every language, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The translators are happy to use this word tongue, almost synonymous with languages or nations. Every nation, every language, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Revelation 5 verse 9, For you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Once again, we see the, the familiar use of the word tongue associated with language or nation. Now, what is this word tongue? The word tongue in the Greek is simply a word glossa. Glossa is the Greek meaning of the word tongue, and the Strong's definition says it is of uncertain affinity, the tongue, by implication, a language. And so we are to consider it in this broad range of meanings. It is of uncertain affinity, and so it could be used for praise, and it could be used for slander. But it's also just a member in your body. It's just a functioning member of your body. And by implication, it is useful for language. The Greek word for tongues, plural, is interesting. It's the same word, glossa. So tongue or tongues is the same Greek word, and therefore, lexically, it can refer both to the physical organ of the tongue or to the speaking of a language. Now, to speak, the verb to speak in a language is the, ver the Greek verb leileo. I don't know if I said that right. Probably not. Eden said it was eo at the end. Eo. Anyway. The combination of leeo with glossa is glossa leeo. Nailed it, I think. 
All the Greek nerds are shaking their heads. But what does that mean? Well, it means to speak in tongues or to speak in languages, the same thing. And so it's really helpful, I think, that when we say what is speaking in tongues, we could conclude it is speaking in languages. We're not stretching that. We're not making it up. It is the original meaning, and it's often used interchangeably. To speak in tongues is to speak in languages. Now, from the beginning, God desired one people with one voice to bring him glory. But we know that that was ruined early on. In Genesis chapter 3, at the fall of man, we know that there was sin that entered and it disrupted things. And soon after that disruption, we have this encounter in Genesis 11 where the people gather as a nation together and they want to rebel against God. And in their rebellion, they, they are united in strength, they're united in heart, and they're united with one voice. With one tongue, they decide to build a tower. They decide to build a tower to the heavens in rebellion against God. And it's a fascinating story. It's the Tower of Babel or Babel. And what they do is they say, we want to rule without God. We want to reign without God. And so what God does is He comes down. God comes down by the Spirit and He confuses their languages. In order to disrupt this rebellion, what God does is he confuses their languages. So we've had one language up until now, and from this point on, God confuses their languages. And so now there is division and there is strife. Have a look at the text with me, because what we see here is an interesting connection between Babel and Pentecost. So Genesis 11 verse 1. Have a look at this. It says, Now the whole earth had one language. And the same words. Think about that. Think about travel, how nice it must have been. Except you had to walk, right? Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. The arrogant rebellion of man. But look how God responds. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Notice the irony. God has to come down to find the tower. It's like, so much for your high tower, people. I have to come down to find it. Verse 7, look at this. It says, this is God speaking now. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So you can just imagine it. At this particular tower, suddenly they're all speaking one language, and now they're all speaking in various tongues, various languages. And they don't understand each other, because there's no one to interpret. This is the first time this has ever happened. And what enters is strife. What enters is division. Because everyone's speaking in their own language, no one understands, and so there is division, and there is strife, and they are scattered. Verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And from there on... The nations were scattered, the languages were divided, and from there on, God only particularly worked with 
one nation. Under the old covenant, there was the Hebrew nation, the Israelites, whom God dealt with. God revealed himself to one people group, to one tribe, to one tongue, the Hebrews. But it was never his intention. It was always his goal that he would be a blessing to all the nations. And, and yet they were scattered and they were divided. And so what happened was God gave Israel a mission. God gave Israel a task. And their task was to be a light to the Gentiles. But sadly, they didn't do it. They, they, they kept the gospel to themselves instead of sharing it with the nations. And so the prophets came and the prophets prophesied that one day God would come down again. Not only in, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, but that because of Christ's finished work, God would send His Spirit. And there would be a day where God would bring forth praise from the lips of all nations. And the prophets anticipated this. And there was a growing anticipation until we come to the day of Pentecost. After Jesus has ascended, Jesus sends the Spirit. And the Spirit is poured out upon the church at Pentecost. And what we find at Pentecost is the Hebrew people themselves begin to speak in other languages. A divine reversal of Babel. The gospel now going to the nations. Have a, have a look at it with me in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And they were all filled, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. These are Jews. These are Hebrews speaking. These are the disciples, the apostles. They've never learnt these languages. This is unlearnt languages. For them, it was a unique experience, but no doubt they were remembering what God did at Babel, that, that somehow the gospel was kept from other nations and it was reduced to one people group, but now that's being reversed. Why? Because look at what people say. Look at verse 5. Now, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. What, here's the situation. When it's Pentecost, all the Jews who've been scattered into the other nations, they come to Jerusalem for Pentecost to celebrate. And so all these different languages, all these different dialects, including other peoples, even Gentiles, come. Look at this at verse 6. And at the sound, what sound? The sound of the multitude of, of, of rushing wind, the sound of tongues of fire, the, the sound of people praising God in different languages. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were what? Bewildered. Why? Because each one was hearing them speak in his own what? Language. Earlier he said it's in tongues, right? They began to speak in tongues. And, and now he tells us it was in a language. And what language? In their own home language. And they're amazed. It's like a French person, you know, standing there in Paris and suddenly your mate starts speaking in Swahili and you're like, whoa, this is unusual. Look at what happens, verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, 
are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, we know what language they normally speak, and now they're not speaking their normal language. And look at what he says, verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them, what are they doing? Telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Do you see how he talks about tongues and languages and tongues and languages? Very clear. They, they, they recognized there were about 14 different languages, it says, that were recognized. Languages that the apostles had never learned. What is this? It's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. God does miracles, right? In the Bible, we see many miracles. But what were miracles? Well, they were a sign, weren't they? They weren't just fanciful magic. No, no. They were a sign. And what was this a sign of? It was a sign that God was breaking down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. It was a sign of confirmation that what Christ had done was enough. That Jesus, as his flesh was torn on the cross, he was broken not just for one language, not just for one tribe, but for every language, nation, tribe, and tongue, right? And this was the evidence that God's people, the Hebrews, the Jews themselves, would now begin to declare the praises of God in Gentile language that was unheard of. It was scandalous, if we may say that. Scandalous that a Jew, that a Hebrew, would sing the praises of God in a Gentile tongue. Now, with all of that in the background, right? Because that's all we've got in the background, really. High view, big view, wide view, narrow, 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 come down, Acts 2, Okay, we've got it repeated in eight, chapter 8 and in chapter 10 and in chapter 19. But by the way, all those chapters are exactly a repetition of what happened in chapter 2. And Peter himself says that in chapter 10. Because what happens is the Spirit comes upon the Gentiles and Peter says, that's incredible, it's exactly what happened to us back then. And so those aren't different situations. What happens to the Gentiles in chapter 10 is a repeat of what happened in, in Jerusalem in chapter 2. So, all that to say, when we get to chapter 14, we have no reason to think that the gift of tongues in Corinth is anything different to the speaking of tongues that has taken place in Acts. There is very little, almost no, no evidence. We've got Acts 2. We've got biblical theology before that. Then we've got Acts 2. We've got Acts 8, 10, and 19. And all of those instances, all of those occasions are foreign languages. Miraculously given to the speaker. Never learned before for the honor and praise of God, for the mission of God. So when we come to 1 Corinthians 14, the issue is not could the Corinthians speak in tongues or was this some kind of demonic manifestation? Was this, was this evil? Was the tongue being used for evil? And we have to say, no, it, it, it wasn't, because Paul acknowledges, and he even says, I want you all to speak in tongues, right? So he's not afraid of it. The problem with the Corinthians is they were abusing it. 
He was, they were abusing it. And so Paul's bringing correction. They were not using the gift the way they were meant to use the gift. They were like kids with new toys, right? They didn't want to share. They wanted to keep it to themselves or boast about their gifts, but the one thing they didn't want to do was to share it. And that's what we get a glimpse of. In, in uh, verse 20, look what he says to them. He says, brothers, do not be children. Don't be childish, right? Do not be children in your thinking. This is not the point of the gifts, right? You're abusing the spiritual gifts, especially tongues. You, you guys are not using it the way it is meant to be used. Be infants in evil in your thinking. Be mature. So here's what we see. How were they abusing the gifts? They were abusing the gifts in three areas in particular. Paul wants to tell us about a renewed concern. He wants to talk to us about a religious confusion and restrictive chaos. So here we go, quickly. We're in chapter 14 now, right? We've landed in, in, in chapter 14, but we know we're near landing, right? Here we go. Renewed concern. The concern of Paul is that we are to edify others, not self. This is the overarching theme, hasn't it been? From chapter 12, chapter 13, and even in chapter 14, he keeps banging this drum. And the drum that he keeps banging over and over and over is that the spiritual gifts are to edify others. Not to edify you, not to make you look good, not to make you look spiritual, but to build up the body. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So his renewed concern now, he takes aim at the gift of tongues and he wants to talk to them about how they're using it. And look what he says in verse 2. So he says this. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him. He utters mysteries in the Spirit. Look at verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. You see, what Paul's doing in verse 2 and verse 4 is he's saying, this is not how it should be. He's not actually endorsing it. He's telling it as it is. And the way it is isn't the way it's meant to be. Look at what he says. The one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men. It should be to men. But the way you're using it, it's only to God. The point of the gifts is to edify the body. And if it's to edify the body, it's horizontal. The point of the gifts is that it goes this way, right? It goes out to people. That's the point of the gifts. But you're using it vertically. It's going to God. And only God knows what you're saying because no one understands it. He's going to get to how we resolve that. But his point is, look at verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue, in a, in a foreign language, builds up himself. In other words... Don't do that. That's not what it's for. It's not to build you up. It's to build the church up, which is why he prefers prophecy. And, and so many have misinterpreted this. Many people think that verse 2 and 4 are an endorsement of build myself up. But I submit to you that there is nothing in all of the texts that speak about spiritual gifts about them being primarily to build you up. Now, let me just say this. 
when we do use our gifts, there is some edification for us, right? We do get encouraged. You know, so when you serve, isn't it interesting that others get served, but you also get blessed? It's amazing how that works. When you give, you receive. If you pray for someone to be healed, and they are healed, a gift of healing, are you encouraged? Of course you're encouraged. But the goal of the gift isn't for your edification, it's for their edification. So Paul is insisting here that edification of others is the goal. Look at what he says in verse 5. This is why he says that prophecy is better than tongues. And the reason why prophecy is better is because people understand it. And if you understand it, then you get edified. Without understanding, there's no way I can be edified. Look at verse 5. He says, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, languages, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Look at this. Unless, this is a big unless, unless someone what? Interprets so that the church may be built up. In other words, the church is built up when there's prophecy. Why? Because we understand and the church will be built up if there is interpreted tongues. Why? Because then we understand. So his renewed concern is it's, it's not like it's completely, it's not like you're sinning, all right? Let's say you have the gift of tongues, speaking in different languages, and you only ever use it for yourself. It's not like I, I, I speak under correction, I don't know, but let me, <laughs> let me just say that. Maybe God would disagree with me, but I don't think he's going to strike you down, right? I pray that he doesn't. But it's not the intended purpose. It's not the goal. So, so what are we to do then? If, if you do have the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, languages, what, how is it meant to be used? Well, that's his next point. His next point is religious concern. And his concern is that if the, if the gift does work in a public service or in any public meeting, then interpretation is crucial. Because without interpretation, there's no understanding. We don't understand what you're saying. And so we're not helped. So look what he argues. Verse 6, he says, Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you Unless I bring you. Notice the horizontal aspect of his gift. He says, I'm coming to you. And if I speak to you, right? Who, who's it for? It's for the church. If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you what? Some revelation, some knowledge, some prophecy or teaching. In other words, unless I bring it in a language that you understand. There's no way you're going to be built up. If I just show off with my gift, right? And so then he drives this point home with two illustrations. And the illustrations are, unless we give clarity to what I'm saying, unless there's some understanding, unless there's some interpretation, it's actually meaningless. Look what he says, verse 7. 
He says, even if lifeless instruments, so his first analogy now is of a musical concert. Even if lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, modern day violin, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? So in other words, here's the situation. There's a concert, there's a whole lot of stringed instruments, we all go and watch the concert, and the violin starts to do its own thing, right? The violin detunes itself, if that were possible, and it starts to play another tune. Not only is it not playing in harmony with the other instruments, it's playing its own tune. And what's the effect? The, the, the whole orchestra is now just... Sounds awful, right? There's no meaning. There's no life. There's no joy. There's no beauty. Why? Because there's no understanding. He doubles down on this analogy, and he goes now to a military example. In verse 8, it's still an instrument, by the way. He says this, And if the bugle, trumpet, gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So here's the example. Let's say the army trumpeter decides that morning, you know, there's a battle on the horizon and, uh, and he knows what his job is, but he decides, nah, I'm just going to play a bit of jazz. Forget about the trumpet sound to ready the army. I'm just going to play my own little tune. I'm just going to play a little bit of jazz. Now we know that Ray Charles would, be, would, would love it, right? But the army would be divided. Not only divided, but destroyed. Because they don't know the sound. They may enjoy it, but they're going to get hammered, right? Look what he says in verse 9. So with yourselves. In other words, the two illustrations, the, the, the point of me coming to speak to you without meaning is meaningless. And he says, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech, that is not intelligible, understandable, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. And so what he's calling for is understanding, interpretation. There must be interpretation. If anyone speaks in an unknown language, if anyone has the gift of tongues and they publicly speak in an unknown tongue, Paul says it's really not helpful unless there's interpretation. If there's an interpretation, then we can understand and we can be edified. So look where he goes next, verse 10 and 11. He says then, there are doubtless many different languages in the world. Isn't that interesting? Just in case you were thinking that maybe tongues is not languages, he just brings it home here. He says, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So church, hear me. Covenant grace. When Paul is speaking about He's talking in tongues, speaking in tongues. He's not talking about meaningless sounds, meaningless symbols. He's talking about languages, unknown to the speaker. The speaker's never learnt it before. It's a miracle. It's a spiritual gift. And interpretation is critical. Because without interpretation, what we begin to do 
is divided up into, into different camps and we feel like we're foreigners with one another. So, what's his, what's his uh, recommendation? Have a look at verse 13. Therefore, all right, he has his recommendation. So there's all this religious confusion. People are speaking out loud publicly, and there's no interpretation. So here's his, here's his recommendation. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a language, a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So even I don't understand what I'm saying. That's what he says. I haven't learned this language before, all right? So what am I to do, verse 15? What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit. I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks, so he's acknowledging that, that God understands you, but no one else understands you, right? Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? If they don't understand, if you don't bring an interpretation, if all you do is do it in the spirit with your, your, your unknown language, but you don't do it with interpretation, with your mind, if you don't translate it into language we are understanding, then you make everyone feel like an outsider. No one can say amen. All they're going is oh me or oh my. What's going on here? No one can say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying. Which is why Paul then lands in verse 19 and he says that in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind. So there he clarifies that the, the, the bit there in verse 13 to 16, if you're not quite sure when he's going spirit, mind, spirit, mind, here he clarifies it. In the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind. What, what does he mean? With understanding. I understand what's going on in my mind with understanding in order to what? Instruct. Notice there's meaning with my mind in order to instruct others than what? Than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul is not happy with religious confusion. Religious confusion can be very damaging. Just, just this week, um, I heard, I've heard stories of religious confusion again. And I thought it was maybe kind of on its way out. You know, it, it, when I grew up, this was kind of what was happening, you know, that, that it, people were told that if you don't speak in tongues that you're not a, a true Christian or you're not a, an empowered Christian or you're not a very spiritual Christian. And, and, and yet these things are still happening today. And, and, and people, young people are trying to, are, are being coached or taught into these things. Or even more disturbing is we go into church context and we, we hear people speaking in tongues out loud, publicly, with no interpretation whatsoever. There's no way I can say amen. I don't know what's being said. And Paul's concerned about this also. Notice this. This is where he goes because his concern is not only for the church, but his concern is for the unbeliever. Look at this. What are the non-Christians going to make of all this? And so in verses 21, he goes on and he says, In the law, 
So he quotes now from Isaiah, in the Lord is written, interesting that he calls it the law, in the Lord is written by people of estranged tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, I will speak to the Jews, even, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So what, why is he quoting Isaiah 28 here? Because what happens in Isaiah 28 is a picture of the Assyrian nation invading Jerusalem. And the way that they knew they were invaded under the judgment of God was the suddenly that a foreign language was in their midst. You imagine you're living in a city and all you know is this language. This is the language you grew up with. This is the language everyone speaks with. This is the language on the streets. And suddenly there's another language dominating you. And it was a picture of God's judgment. God allowed the Assyrians. The Assyrians were allowed to invade Jerusalem because God had judged them for their unbelief. And then he goes on and he says, Therefore, thus, verse 22, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Just like the unbelieving nation of Israel who suddenly heard these other tongues while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Here's his conclusion. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Here's his concern. Paul's concern is almost a parallel with what happened with the Israelites, with the invading Assyrians. It was a sign of judgment that they were in unbelief, that they were hardened in their hearts. And Paul says, if everyone is speaking in tongues or singing in tongues or whatever it might be, with no interpretation, with no regard, with absolute chaos, there's no order, there's no one interpreting, Paul says, you're going to serve the unbeliever poorly. He's going to say, you guys are loony. He literally says that. Will they not say, the end of verse 23, will they not say that you are out of your minds? And Paul's point is, don't do that because it's a judgment on that person. Because what are they going to do? They're going to walk out the door and they're going to be hardened in their heart. And their rejection of God will be affirmed. These guys are crazy. They've lost their minds. And so Paul's religious concern here is for order and interpretation. Let me bring it into land. I know this has been longer than normal. But he ends with this idea of order, not chaos. Orderly participation is Christ exalting. What then, brothers? Verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together... So is he going to just now say, okay, no more. That's it, finished. Nobody, nobody prophesy, nobody speak in tongues. No, he doesn't do that. It's really interesting. He says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one, hey, here we go. Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now we know he doesn't say, hey, it's a free for all. We know that. Why? Because at the end he's going to say, everything must be done decently in order. So what's his point? He says, it's gifted participation. If you can sing, then bring the hymn. If you can't sing, sing to yourself. All right? <laughs> if you can preach, then preach. And if you can sing, then sing. And if you can prophesy, if you've been gifted, then serve the church with your gift. Listen, 
the gifts are, when gifts operate, grace flows from the gift to the receiver, all right? When you're sitting in church listening to the preacher, you shouldn't be the one giving grace to the preacher, right? Grace should flow from the pulpit to you. And sometimes you do have to be a little gracious, right? But the, the principle is grace should flow from the gift. And so if you can't sing, if God hasn't gifted you with a lovely voice, then serve us well, please. We don't want to be gracious. Oh, no, it was beautiful. No, it wasn't. All right, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> let all things, look at what he says, verse 26. Let all things, he's concluding, let all things be done for what? Building up. And here's, here's his order, all right? Here's his order. He, he says, I don't want chaos. Look what he says, verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three. And each in turn. And let someone interpret. I mean, that's, that's just not happening, right? Firstly, is it the real thing? And, and personally, I think that much of what we hear and see in the charismatic world today is not the gift of speaking in tongues as we see it biblically defined, sadly. I myself, when I was a young Christian, 17, was, was taught that I needed to speak in tongues in order to be truly filled with the Spirit, in order to be a real Christian. And so I was coached into speaking in tongues and practiced it for many, many years until I began to question why have I never used this for others? <laughs> Only ever used it for me. <laughs> and then also when the church does it, it's a it seems like we're disobeying what's clear here, right? Everyone's doing their own thing. No one's interpreting. And then when there is an interpretation, it's like, well, was that, <laughs> was that a really interpretation? And I don't want to be cynical about this. I really don't. Maybe it's coming across like that, but I really, it's more a concern. Because like I've said before, God doesn't need our help. He can do this. Let there be two or most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is, verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion. He's sovereign, and he gives gifts. And if he wants to give the gift of tongues to edify someone else, to save someone else, to reach someone else, he can do it. So, my brothers, verse 39, so, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Let me end with a story quickly. This week, we met with Janine Kutsia, who is a missionary with Therefore Ministries. And uh, just recently, Janine and Herod, her husband, relocated, sold their house in PE, uh, rented out their house in PE, moved everything to Jordan to go and live in the Middle East. And they're now out here, you know, just doing some kind of research or, or recovery stuff and, and just realigning things 
in order to go back. And we had a meeting with them. Emil, myself, Yaku, Mark was there for a bit. We met in the CG house this week. We met there and we were, well, how's it going? What's happening? What's the ministry like? How difficult is it? And she was saying that one of the most precious things they've been able to do is when they go walking in the streets, the Arabic people invite them in. And most of the time, it's, it's, it's kind of just high fives and nods because, you know, there's this language barrier. You know, Gerrit and Janine speak English and Afrikaans, Afrikaans really well and, and English really well and, and, and Arabic not well, right? That's, we can understand that. They're in another foreign land. But she told us the story while we're sitting there. She doesn't know what sermon I'm busy preparing, right? And she begins to tell us the story. And she says, you know what? We were invited into this one home and we've seen these people and we've had some warm greetings, but we were invited in. And I thought, let me just, over tea, let me just start to share the gospel. And she says she starts to share the gospel. And at first it was like there wasn't really landing. And she's reading out of her Bible. And, and they seem quite open. And she says, and the next minute the lady starts responding. And she starts to respond in perfect English. She says it, it was unbelievable. She didn't know what was going on. This lady starts to talk to her in perfect English. And up till then it was always just um, hit and miss. And she said for the next few minutes, they had a perfectly wonderful gospel conversation. This is what the Bible says about Jesus. This is what happened when Christ died on the cross. And this is what it means. And then it was over. So she tells me this this week. And so, church, I do believe in the gift of speaking in tongues. And I think that it is Beautiful when we hear stories like that. When we see the gift used to edify others and for the advance of the gospel. And when it's done decently and in order, those aren't my words, that's the Bible. And we bring glory and honor to Christ. Now, I might not have asked answered all your questions, right? I know. We could go on for hours. And there may be many more questions. And that's okay. We can, we can talk about them. We can have conversations in our community groups. We can talk to our friends. If you, if you do practice speaking in tongues and you find it builds you up and you feel encouraged and you feel like you're praying and interceding for others and you do it on your own and nobody else hears you, I want to say that that's okay. You, you, that's between you and God. You can do that. For me, it bothered me. It bothered me, and, and I had to wrestle through that. And, and my conclusion was I, never, I, I really didn't feel like I had the real thing. But that was me. And someone else, you've got to walk your own journey. You've got to walk this thing out with the Lord. You've got to wrestle with these verses. But God will help you. God will lead you. And if you have questions, I'd love to chat. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have your word and your spirit. Your spirit is with us, in us, working through us. We thank you that we can learn from the scriptures. Lord, we want to use our tongues to sing your praises. We want to use our voice to declare your name. We want to tell of your wonderful works. We want to speak of your deeds. We want to declare your name and your fame to the nations. We thank you, Lord, that we get to do it in our home tongue. We thank you that we get to do it in foreign languages that we've learned. 
And if you need to, Lord, use us to speak it in a language we've never learned before. But Lord, we, we're open. We're open to you. We're open to you leading us, guiding us, using us. We would like nothing more than to tell people about Jesus. We thank you for this word tonight and I pray that it would bring encouragement, not confusion. I pray that it would bring joy and not concern. I really pray by your spirit, Lord, that you would bring understanding and bring peace to many hearts. And we thank you that if we have Christ, we have all that we need. Your word tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies because we are in Christ. Wow, what a privilege. All the heaven's blessings, every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are leading us, you are guiding us, you are building your church. Use us, we pray, for your glory. Amen.